Welcome to a special summer discussion segment. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Let's get started. So what are you doing today, Joe? Well, as you know, it's our off-season, as our audience knows. I do. It's been nice having my Friday evenings free again. I <laughs> yeah, don't have to have been... you in my home every other week. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so as our audience knows, we like to continue to share history with all of them, and we will continue to do so even in the off-season. So today, we have a special treat. We do. It's awesome. We had a chance to sit down virtually with an author from the United Kingdom by the name of Dr. Dominic Selwood. He had a book come out in March 2022 called Anatomy of a Nation, A History of British Identity in 50 Documents. And we were given the opportunity to talk to him about that, about some other historical topics, and we are excited to share that with you. Dominic Selwood is a historian, journalist, and barrister. He is also a best-selling author and novelist and frequent contributor to national newspapers, radio, and TV, including The Telegraph, The Independent, The Spectator, The Catholic Herald, Sky News, and the BBC. He has a doctorate in history from the University of Oxford and a master's from the Sorbonne. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and the Society of Antiquaries. He graduated from the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and served as an officer in the British Army, and he lives in London with his family. We're speaking with Dr. Dominic Selwood. He's the author of, of the book, Anatomy of a Nation, A History of British Identity in 50 Documents. And we are delighted to uh, be able to have a conversation with him. Thank you, Dr. Selwood, very much for joining us here on 15 Minute History. We really it's a real pleasure. It's so kind of you to have me on your show. Well, we appreciate your time. The book is a fascinating read, I think, and it presents kind of the history of Great Britain in, I guess, for me, a unique way. I loved how the text moved from kind of general narrative right into the document, back and forth, very seamlessly. It wasn't kind of like jarring, you know, okay, we're talking about this period and now we're going to talk about the document. I really, I loved it. it. Reminded me of history classes. I did two primary source history classes at the start of my college career. What prompted you to write this book and, and to take this kind of unique approach, given like modern historical trends that are kind of moving away from primary sources, at least here in the United States? I've always wanted to write a history of Britain. And when I was thinking about this more seriously, it was around 2016 when the Brexit referendum discussions were beginning to happen. And, and for those who are familiar uh, with that, we had a decision in the UK as to whether we were going to stay part of Europe or not. And as much as people were articulating visions of the future and what Britain should be doing, I realised that actually, you know, behind all of it were, were a lot of really... Um, strong assumptions that people had about the past and about Britain's past. So that struck me that that would be a really good way into thinking about Britain and its identity, to take this moment of Brexit and say, well, how did we get here? Mm. And then I, want, I just wanted to bring it to life uh, in thinking about identity. And I just thought, I agree with you that primary sources, if, it, if it's just, you know, laws and documents of state, it's pretty dry. But if you can really get close to people and people's voices and what they were saying, that actually is really fascinating because for me, history is about the stories. So I, want to, I wanted to find people and their voices from different periods. And I wasn't sure I was going to succeed. But as I went through and I began dividing all of history up into effectively these 50 periods, each with a voice, I found it was possible. There really are documents going all the way back, all the way back to classical times when you can hear individual voices. So I thought it'd be a great way of just getting close to Britons, um, you know, in every period. Absolutely. Some of the, especially the early stuff, I was I was absolutely fascinated by how far back you were able to go and find primary sources. Um, one of the first documents that I want to talk about is the the birthday invitation written by I don't have the name of the uh, the author, but it was written to Sulpicia uh, Lepidina. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's correct. Yes, yes. And just the the fact that you you have that that treasure that was kind of unearthed just by accident. It's not found deep in a vault somewhere in Rome or something like that. Can you tell us a little bit about where some of these documents came from? Were most of them in the British Library? Did they did they kind of 
come about? Were, were like archaeologists involved in finding them or was it just kind of a lot of them by accident, the ancient ones that is? Yeah, yeah. So, so this one is amazing and it is extraordinary. I'm really glad you picked it. Because when we think of, of Roman Britain in a classical period, we're all used to these big monumental inscriptions on buildings and they're really mm-hmm. quite, they're quite impersonal. But no, what happened here is it was, in this case, it was archaeologists in the 1970s up in the north of England, sort of just a little bit south of the border with Scotland, which was the edge of the Roman Empire, the edge mm-hmm. of the Roman world. They had these forts, obviously, you know, manning, manning the borders. And one of the forts was a place called Vindolanda. And they started excavating there in the 1970s. And they just began to find what turned out to be a hall of over a thousand effectively little wooden postcards. I mean, they're slivers of wood, uh, they're birch and they're alder, and people had written on them in ink. So actually, it's the oldest known ink handwriting in the Roman world. Wow. It was pretty amazing for little old Britain and, you know, and the border of Britain. But what they, they found all sorts of things, you know, letters from brewers, people being sent, you know, care packages of socks and underwear back from Rome to this kind of cold border with Scotland. But one of them is this birthday invitation. And what's so extraordinary about that is... It's by a, a, a woman called Claudia, uh, and she lives a little way outside of Vindolanda, but she's writing to her friend, who's the wife of a Roman commander at Vindolanda. She says, please, would you come to my birthday? It would really make the day so much more special if you, my, you know, my true friend, could be there. Please send my mm. love to your husband and to your son. And you just get this incredible feeling of what it must have been like to be a non-British army wife stationed in Britain as a foreign posting in this godforsaken place, you know, way up in the north. And there they were doing ordinary things that we would recognise today, having a birthday party, wanting their best friend to be there. And one of the most extraordinary things about the document is although three quarters of it is written by her scribe, she wrote, she hand wrote the last quarter of the document where she basically sends her love and regards to her friend. Hmm. And that is the oldest woman's handwriting in the entire Roman world. Really? Wow. It's an amazing thing to have, it just, just discovered by chance. And we're still finding more of these postcards at Vindolanda. They're still digging more of them out of the ground. Really? Um, it just seems to be an extraordinary cache of things, yeah. That's an incredible treasure, and, and especially something that old, written by a woman, at a time when, what, maybe 1% of women even knew how to write? It was not, that was not common back then, was it? No, not common. So it, do, it, does, it does tell us something about, about literacy in the period. And we're still learning about literacy in the classical world. Certainly, you know, when you think of that period, you think, well, not so much. But actually, it's not common, but it's more common than we thought. And this shows really? it because she was probably, she says she has a young child, which means she's probably in her late teens or early 20s, is educated, is, is married to an officer. So there are these classes of people who are literate that we don't, you know, we haven't really thought about before. So it's, it's important on that score, too. Yeah, absolutely. Building off of kind of the, the unique culture that, uh, that existed in Roman Britain, the UK today is, is obviously it's four nations that have a lot of common traits, but they also have very unique identities. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. Do you think that kind of the incomplete conquest, Roman conquest uh, of Great Britain contributed to this? You know, you've got England and Wales, what is today England and Wales, are Romanized, Scotland and, and Ireland obviously are not. Do you think that there's some kind of relics of that cultural difference uh, that exists even today between those two parts of Great Britain. It, it's it's definitely something that I try and uh, try and look at in the book as well. And also the Anglo-Saxons come, and it's quite mm-hmm. a similar picture again in England, but not in Scotland, not in not in Ireland, a little bit in Wales. Actually, the wars of religion as well. When you think about Protestantism and Catholicism in this oh, country yeah. as well, you do have these segregations. So uh, when we when we look at that aggregation of of the sort of four nations who all have to live in this very, very small archipelago of islands, mm-hmm. which has these defined borders. We can't expand anywhere. There's only sea. We have, we have almost lived in, with every configuration of nations being friendly and hostile towards each other within this, uh, you know, within this polity of these islands. But the Roman legacy is, is very strong and is still, is, does still inform it because the degree to which 
England and Wales became Romanized and therefore Christianized long before the rest of the British Isles became Christian, linked to the Roman Empire by, by trade. And we see that particularly with the south of England and the east of England, which have always since remained more connected with Europe, more affluent because they have those connections, more, more mm-hmm. internationalist in many ways. Yes, there are cultural legacies of that. Um, and one can see that in the in, just in the geography of, of Britain. Did those expand after Rome fell or did those grow at all or have they stayed uh, the same in general in terms of the um, differences? The arrival of Christianity marks a, marks a really big change because we have we have Roman Christianity in one part and we have Celtic Christianity in another part. Sure. And it takes quite a lot of disagreements before those come together and actually the Roman version then then wins over. But even if you if you bring it you know, forward a millennium and a half, we think about the Jacobite rebellions under, under the Hanoverians when we've got some still supporting a Catholic monarch, others supporting the new German Protestant ascendancy. You know, we look back to those areas where the Jacobites are, are recruiting. It's very much in Scotland. It's very much in Ireland. So, the, I mean, th- those those divisions remain. They don't move particularly because, the, I mean, the borders are sort of the borders and they're quite natural borders. But in, ter- in terms of the legacies and the sense of cultural togetherness or apartness, those do not heal or change after Rome. They, they remain pretty constant. Mm-hmm. Scotland has, has largely had its own identity for the entire period, you know, as has Ireland. Do you, while we're talking about Scotland... There's obviously talk with the Scottish National Party of having a, another referendum or anything like that. Do you see that as one happening and two being a benefit or a detriment to the future of the United Kingdom? I know you're a historian, mostly focusing on the past. I hate to ask historians to predict the future, but if you if you have any thoughts on that, I'd well, love I to think hear. The, the 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 one thing the doing the research for the book has told me is that is that you know a bit like Heraclitus said, you can't put your foot in the same in the same river twice. Nothing stays the same. The, the British Isles does constantly evolve and change. Um, and what I can say is if it does happen, the British Isles will cope. Uh, we'll have a slightly different shape and a different complexion. But even that won't last forever. It'll turn into something else again after that. It, mm-hmm. is, it is an endlessly changing group of nations and the way they deal with each other. I think, I think it, is, it is more likely than at any other time in my lifetime that that could actually happen. Mm-hmm. And it will, it will change the UK quite fundamentally because when you look at when the Act of Union happened and Scotland did join to England... England had not been massively successful internationally, but very soon after the Scottish Union, some of the, uh, one has to be careful of the language one uses, but anyway, some, some of the most remembered battles and, and engagements abroad of Britain as an entity came in that period, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Marlboroughs, the Churchills, you know, Scotland proved to be a vitally important part of Britain militarily and economically. And so, and so things will change if Scotland, if Scotland secedes, for sure. Yeah. I love what you said, and it, it is reflected in, in Anatomy of a Nation, how history and how cultures and societies move and evolve over time. And I think so often we're seeing it here in the United States, you know, both political sides, both cultural sides are so rooted in the past and they don't want things to change or they want things to change maybe too much. And it's fascinating to take, because we're such a young nation, to take a country that's so much older than ours and look at the whole period of British history and just see how things have changed. And yet Britain has survived. Yes, it's changed, but it's also, it's adapted. And and humanity is amazingly able to cope and adapt to these difficult and trying circumstances. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And those those changes have not been insignificant. If you look at Roman Britain and then sub-Roman Celtic Britain that followed the age of King Arthur and then the Anglo-Saxon period. I know that's a difficult phrase, but it's so hard to know what else to call them. But that, that early right. English period, 
then the Viking period, then the Norman period. These groups of people, they are speaking different languages. They are bringing different cultures. They are looking in different directions. The Vikings and the the Anglo-Saxons look across the water to the east, to Denmark, to to the Scandinavian countries, to Germany. The Norman French are looking south. And then we have that huge long period up to 100 years war, after which England begins to define itself by looking inwards and not trying to find succor by looking externally. And then then in the much later period, of course, we're looking looking west. We're looking to America. We're looking to the Anglosphere and that world that Churchill always saw us as as belonging to, you know, part of the the, the English-speaking family of nations. But in all those times, it's not just that we've had a different government. We have had a fundamentally different outlook on life. It it has been different countries with people with different allegiances ruling in different languages with different laws and different priorities. So, you know, people say to me, well, what do you conclude about British identity? One of them is we, we have had many. We really have been different countries. Has a big component of that been geography? So when we're thinking about all the all the changes that have happened and and how Britain has evolved over time, and thinking about it as Britain that has changed, not as several countries that that have changed, is is that specifically because of where it is, or is there something else in the culture overall that has stayed constant? So where where it is is somewhere that's not particularly central to anything. It was it was on the periphery of the Roman Empire. It's on the periphery of Europe. It created the Anglosphere of the sort of the first countries in in its sort of Commonwealth and its empire. So that's probably not a, kind of a fair analogy. But no, I don't I don't think it is placed somewhere strategic where you would say this country was always going to be somewhere that we took notice of. It's not like Italy, which sort of dominates the Mediterranean or something sure. of that nature. I think it has a lot to do with. It's uh, natural resources. The, the reason why Vikings and, and Normans, you know, that whole period came and endlessly wanted to conquer it is because the, the, the Anglo-Saxons, again, forgive if I use the term, I know it's so sensitive, but I just don't know what else to call them. The Anglo-Saxons built amazing infrastructure and government. And so people were invading, not just because of land, but because of the sophistication of what they were mm. taking on. You know, if we look at something like the Doomsday Book, which William the Conqueror managed to get done in, I think it's 18 months or something, you know, the entire the entire area surveyed catalogues down to every single cow, every sheep, whoever is in which household. That's because of this extraordinary Anglo-Saxon administrative system that was able to undertake, you know, governmental surveys at that degree of complexity. So I think organisation uh, is something that goes back a very long way. And that has played a big role in, in conquest and, you know, in, inwardly, and also Britain then looking outwardly again. It had the organisation and the infrastructure to, to function, to be attractive, and then also, but also to take its vision abroad. Mm-hmm. You've used the term Anglo-Saxon and, and kind of transitioning to that period, that post-Roman period. It is, as you said, it's, it's kind of a touchy term to use. Can you explain to our audience kind of why that is the case? Yes, it, it's actually, it's really interesting because it, it goes in a couple of phases. Mm-hmm. So they're the people and there's the language. So as a language, Anglo-Saxon, if you, if you walked into a university library in the sort of the early 1900s, you would have seen shelves of teaching Anglo-Saxon and how to learn to read Anglo-Saxon. Mm-hmm. Now they call it Old English. And the change happened during World War I because we wanted to move away from thinking about ourselves as having Germanic roots because the Germans mm-hmm. were now the enemy. And the royal family changed their name from Saxe-Coburg, Gotha to Windsor. We had a big de-Germanizing process. So that was one sensitivity. So the language, the language has been Old English now for quite a long time. But in terms of thinking about the people and the culture, it's become more sensitive again because Anglo-Saxon in a modern context does get used by extreme nationalistic groups and by racial groups mm. to define something that has racial connotations as, as a cultural 
Anglo-Saxon Protestant identity, which is very excluding of, of other identities and does lead to difficulties in trying to get people of all backgrounds to come and study Anglo-Saxon, the Anglo-Saxon period, and, and feel that it's for them and that it's not something that's elitist or divisive. So it's, it's become more culturally difficult as a term. But the real challenge is you can't really just call them the, the, the early English because that doesn't differentiate them from the Celtic cultures that are there or the Viking cultures that come in as well. So at the moment, we've identified the problem, but we haven't identified the solution. Yeah. That's that's interesting. The most I think the most important figure, at least that's who's commonly known to general audiences during this period, and it's mentioned in the book uh, in the section of the history of the Britons, is of course King Arthur. Most people know something about King Arthur. Mostly, it's the legends that came about. I believe in the late Middle Ages is when those right, kind of started. Right. It seemed to me as I was reading through that that the historical Arthur shared some life experiences with some men who lived a couple centuries later. I'm thinking of the Frankish lords like Charles Martel and Charlemagne. They lived during or after traumatic declines. They unified their people. I'm curious why Arthur has become kind of almost a mythic figure, whereas Charlemagne and Charles Martel have both largely been confined to the pages of history. Is it just because of the legends that sprang up and the the fact that we don't know as much because there's less documentation from that period of Celtic or Anglo-Saxon Britain? Or I'm curious if you could share some thoughts and insight on that. I think I think your comparison with Charlemagne is really interesting because in in the medieval period they did say we have these these three cycles the matter of Britain the matter of France and the matter of of, of Rome and the matter of France is of course all of the Charlemagne the Song of Roland you know those great stories and the matter mm-hmm. of Britain is Arthur and at that stage they they were you know they were neck and neck they were the two you know national myths the great stories that everyone loved telling in those countries and yet you're right Arthur has survived in a way that others haven't I think Arthur has this amazing genius quality of being an adapter. So if we go back to the really early historical Arthur, you know, the Arthur of the sub-Roman period, he's not even a king. The, the earliest source we have on him is, uh, is, a, is a poem called the Godothin, which dates from um, 575. Uh, and there he's just listed as, as Dux Bellorum, leader of the battles. So he's not a king. But by the time we then see him in the in the in the in the medieval romances you're talking about, they've ennobled him. You know, they've they've, mm-hmm. they've made him royalty. But he has this ability to change. So his his initial character is as a war leader and a successful war leader. We have texts that talk about him, you know, from the very early medieval period, like Arthur's battle list in the, in the history of the Britons. But then in in the in the Middle Ages, he becomes this actually a very Christian figure. Lots of the Holy Grail uh, stories and romances really are, are metaphors for the Eucharist, for the changes, what's happening in the church in terms of in terms of sacramental life. Then the Victorians turn him into this chivalric figure. And then in the modern age, he's become something of a neo-pagan figure in many ways. Yeah. So he's just had an ability to keep reinventing himself, which has kept him very alive. That's interesting. I grew up reading books about Arthur and watching TV shows and things like that. So I was very steeped in the legends early in my life. Does he still have kind of a place in British culture, especially thinking about with young people today? Or have they kind of moved on from these kind of old fashioned legends and and myths that exist? No, I mean, every couple of years, there's a new series on TV reinterpreting the story of Arthur in a new way. It's still still very current. It is still very current. Mm. He is is ever present. Okay. You brought up his battle list, and it is included in the text. Do we know that those each one of those battles took place? Is there have we found historical evidence or anything, or are we just going off of written accounts that yes, he was a real person, yes, he led and won these battles? So the list comes in the, in the history of the Britons, which might have been written by the Welsh monk Nennius. There's some mm-hmm. there's some argument as to who wrote it, but it was definitely written from you know in the early ninth century, and it lists twelve of his battles. Some of them are referenced in other lists, like in the Annals of Wales, which come in the following century from, from St. David's in Wales. 
the really famous ones like Camlan and Baden. Baden um, yeah. But of, but of the twelve, it, it was once the case that people said they're all made up. We've never heard of any of them. And now around half of them have been identified. People have done a huge amount of work linguistically, etymologically, to work out where these places are. And they are identified and cross-referenced with other texts. So, okay. so around half of them, which, which as a historian, you know, you can't help feeling there's no smoke without fire. Very rarely are things entirely made up. There's usually some basis to something, however far back it is. But the fact that we've already identified half does mean that this, this is a list that needs to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. A quick comment there. I enjoyed how you kept going back uh, to that in the book where you were saying, you know, when we read history, we understand there there's a lot of those those types of tales that come out of history and going back and actually going through it, understanding the truth in the story and knowing what parts may not be true. It gave me hope a little bit that a lot of those stories do have some truth in them in terms of application now. I, I agree. And I think I think, you know, the same is true now. It, it's quite difficult to get a full story to run and to remain. You could, you know, you could you see people endlessly putting them out on, you know, on Twitter or on social media, something that is entirely f- fake. And it might it might catch the imagination for a while, but it goes pretty soon. For these things to last a uh, generation in, generation out, century in, century out, that's operating on a slightly different level. And so I think I think one has to take these things seriously. And I know that lots of people say, well, Arthur probably didn't exist because he's only mentioned in a couple of sources. But actually, you could say the same thing. Bodicea, Boudicca, however you want to call her, mm-hmm. you know, she only exists in two Roman sources. Several Roman emperors only exist in one or two Roman sources. Gildas, who wrote about the destruction of, of Celtic Britain and the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons, he's one sole voice in one document. But nobody mm-hmm. says these people don't exist. Just because there are there are very few sources, or because they are um, sometimes opaque, I don't think is a reason to rubbish something and say it never happened. If if it's still there and it's survived, then then that's something we have to take seriously. That's such a good point. You brought up things that were kind of almost made up a, a little bit, which takes us to Magna Carta. Not that Magna Carta was made up, but I, when I read your chapter on it, I was a bit kind of surprised. You ended it, you said its status today is largely a reaffirmation that politicians and historians are dazzlingly inventive in seeing origins and significance where there is little except the disjointed flotsam and jetsam of the ages. Apart from the almost Tolkien-esque language that I really (laughs) appreciate. Compliments to you for that. Yeah, absolutely. This probably reflects my kind of American education because to the extent we learn about these documents here in the States, we're taught there's like a direct line from Magna Carta to the Glorious Revolution of 1688-89 to John Locke and the two treatises to the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution. And yet it sounds like that was really, at least the the origins there, that that was not the case, that Magna Carta was not this moment when the skies open and, you know, (laughs) it seems like we're we're really turning the page on uh, in history there. So do you see a benefit to this kind of revisionist approach that people have taken over the centuries to Magna Carta specifically and then to, to documents generally? And do you think it leads people to put kind of too much emphasis specifically on words that were written centuries ago when societies continue, as we've talked about already, to evolve and progress and to change? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think as in so many things, if it, if it, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> And this this lovely simplistic idea that, and we have it in this country as well, that there's been this evolution of progress. And I mean, the Victorians are very keen on this concept of civilization, but you know, we've come out of the darkness towards the light. This very Whig history, they call it technically. Mm. This idea that it's all been progress. 
And in order to do that, you have to look back and you have to find you know, the landmarks that show this progress. And so Magna Carta is seen as one of them. But actually, that's, that's completely inaccurate. If you look at Magna Carta, Magna Carta is a failed peace treaty that went in the bin after nine weeks. Mm. The country was in flames. The barons were launching the first barons' war. They'd captured London. John was widely hated. He'd managed to have the country put under interdict. He'd been excommunicated. He'd lost all of his allegiances with his barons. He was unpleasant. He was sexually predatory around the court. I mean, he was a really, really disliked man. And in those days, of course, they didn't rule by absolute power. You could only rule by the consent and collaboration of your barons. If you fell out with them, you were in trouble. Not like with Henry VIII or the Tudors, when they could do exactly what they wanted. You know, mm-hmm. at, at least in this period of Angevin history, there needed to be that consent at court. And John lost it completely. So Magna Carta was a moment when the barons put a list in front of John at Runnymede and say, this is the bare minimum that we will settle for. And he ummed and he ard and he sealed it and he said, okay, then fine. So that was the Articles of the Barons. And then for about another couple of days, they continued negotiating. And then he sealed another thing, which was the Charter of Runnymede. That then got sent out to all the cathedrals in the country. They said, this is the deal. This is what's going to keep the peace. And later on, it got broken into two, one of which we called Magna Carta. So we we retro-project and call the whole lot Magna Mm -hmm. Carta, although Magna Carta doesn't really come until a little bit later. But it still didn't work. It still didn't work. The country still descended into civil war. Prince Louis was called over from France to take over the throne in place of John by the barons. And Magna Carta was in the bin. And then what's really interesting is it is effectively forgotten about. John's son, Henry III, does republish it a couple of times. And it is republished a few more times that century by monarchs. But the, the reason they do it is to try and appease the barons and say, look, we hear you. We understand what, you're, what you want. And so, and so this is what we're willing to sign up for. But they never took any notice of it. And they certainly didn't abide by it. And so when you think even centuries later of, well, let's take Henry VIII again or, or Elizabeth I, they were happily murdering away to their heart's content, just summary jurisdictions whenever they wanted someone out of the way. They just had them murdered. There was no Magna Carta. No one was taking any notice of it. There was no concept of trial by your peers. So it, it, it simply wasn't used. It was reinvented under the Stuarts when Parliament was trying to find a historic precedent for Parliament limiting the power of a monarch. And a clever lawyer said, look, Magna Carta, that's exactly what the barons were doing. They were limiting the monarch's power. And then shortly afterwards, as the first American states began to come together and they're thinking about the, the philosophical framework for how states would, would you know, what the values of them would be, you know, Magna Carta was in the air. And so it became quite sewn into a lot of the thinking about American constitutional jurisprudence. But the way you articulated at the beginning, that solid unbroken line is absolutely not there. It's kind of, it's a reinvention of the 17th century. Wow. All my history is <laughs> it's just come crashing down. I was just like, don't know what to say now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's I mean, actually a lot more fun. I mean, history is more complicated and more, oh, absolutely. Um, more messy than we think it is. And so it's always great to, to find these things. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, as, it's not as simple as we thought. What are your thoughts on kind of the general attitude of revisionist historians who do this kind of thing? Do you think that there's a benefit to that? Do you think sometimes they go too far? Is it which kind of your, your stance on revisionism? And, and an add on to that, do you think that it is evolving? Do you think that that it's becoming more honest? It's probably not unique to history. It's, it's probably in, in many subjects. But I think one just has to get a feel for whether what one's reading is trustworthy, whether it's traditional history or revisionist history, because people can be misleading in both. I, you know, I think they're both massively valuable. And, you know, if, if all revisionism is is an attempt to, to think more critically and not just repeat what's been said before, but actually look at stuff again and bring a fresh eye and give us new insights, then I think that's enormously valuable. If it's people coming up with things that really are faintly, you know, preposterous 
and it just, you know, it just, it just sounds good or it's a good soundbite, then that's not such a good thing. And I know it is, and, and this is a, a problem for wider society, isn't it? It is increasingly difficult with all the information out there to know what is real and what is not real. And that's as true for politics as it is for history. So I think in a way it excludes people who are, who are not experts or who are not really into it, because if you don't have some bearing, you can be very quickly misled. But in general, I think the idea of going back and questioning assumptions you know, the tools we have for, use, for, for unpacking history now are infinitely more sophisticated than they were 100 years ago. So I think we do have to keep re-questioning and thinking again. And we come up with some very exciting answers, but it, it has to be done responsibly. I agree. I try to do that in my, in my classroom as a, as a teacher, but it's kind of contrary to how I was trained as a historian. I went to a very small, very conservative school. And at that particular school, revisionism was, you know, you couldn't be a Democrat, you couldn't be a revisionist. And so that, that was kind of, you know, ingrained in my head. And I've had to kind of move past that because you're right. I, I mean, sometimes, yeah, revisionists go a little bit too far, but so often you have to challenge, you have to question these assumptions, not because you think they're wrong, but because you're not sure what's the truth behind it. And, and are they trying to promote an agenda or push something or try and, as you said, change people's minds who don't maybe have the same level of historical understanding or training that professional uh, historians do. I think that's so true. And when you get excited about any Anything. You want to find out about it for yourself, and you do end up just reading masses about it and thinking masses about it. And it's not surprising if you come sometimes with with slightly different conclusions because yeah. different people have read about things and thought about them in different ways. So overall, it's a healthy process. Agreed. And one more question on kind of the Middle Ages, and we'll move into the more modern stuff. When I studied at Oxford, I did a tutorial on the French Revolution, and it was with it was a leading expert on on the French Revolution. He told me right. that France's lack of any kind of restraints on royal power kind of like Magna Carta, even though it was, as you said, a failed peace treaty, that that led directly to the 1789 revolution. Do you think that's a fair interpretation of kind of the unique place that Britain has over some of the some of the continental states that had more bloody revolutions? England obviously had its own, but nowhere near the level of violence at, uh, that we see in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries on the continent of Europe. Yeah, I think that that that's it's so true in a way, isn't it? We didn't have the great revolutions of 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 the 18th century mm-hmm. and the early 19th century when Europe's ripped itself apart. And for lots of British people, that that makes them feel well. We we kind of we did a lot better, didn't we? Actually, we've been doing it for 500 years beforehand, and they were incredibly bloody. Mm-hmm. So the the civil war under Stephen and Matilda in the 12th century, when when you know the the, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle said it was a time when Christ and his saints slept. I mean, the country burnt for 19 years. Uh, people were starving in the villages. Then going into the Hundred Years' War, uh, which to to an extent was a kind of civil war, because it was arguing about the, the the monarchy and and what it was entitled to own and so on. Unbelievably debilitating, brutalizing. I mean, the stories of what went on in this country as armies were marching down to the coast to get on the ships and taking nuns on board and mistreating them, throwing them over the sides. I mean, just horrific. And then going into the Wars of the Roses. All of these were actually civil wars. And then we have the actual civil war under Cromwell, when we turn into a military dictatorship. And then we go into the Jacobite uprisings on under Hanoverians. So so we have have almost nonstop civil wars from from the 12th century through to the early 18th century. So yes, I do think that we escaped the revolutions of the sort of 1789 and onwards, because by then we had a more stable political system. But in the centuries leading up to that, it was virtually nonstop chaos. Mm. So you wouldn't necessarily attribute that to Magna Carta, but more to the political stability that evolved, especially after the Glorious Revolution. Yes, yes, what I hear you saying. Okay. 
Yes, I would, and it's 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 also the the move away from absolutism, as you as you as you hint, because you know the glorious revolution. We we start to establish that Parliament puts the various monarchs on the throne, and when Parliament eventually called over the Hanoverians and said, "We are now going to take charge of this process," which in a way was the culmination of having called Charles II back after the failure of Cromwell. Mm-hmm. Parliament's putting itself in the driving seat and saying, "We are in charge of this process." So we don't have this concentration of absolute power in in small circles of hands. And there's also economic concentration as well, isn't there? Because, you know, in Britain, the Industrial Revolution is going on around the same time, isn't it, from 1750 Mm -hmm. to 1850. And that is all about real handing out of economic power, patents, intellectual property, the right to be an entrepreneur, no internal tolls, a single currency, etc., enabling people to really be entrepreneurial. But whereas in France at the same time, not only do you have the concentration of power at the king, but also almost all of the economy is run in this mercantilist, centralist style, where it's all being handed out to the king and his mates. So yes, by then they are they are very different countries, run very differently. So speaking of kind of the shift from away from absolutism, in uh, summary of an execution, we cover the period of Henry VIII, and he is quite literally a towering figure in British history. Apparently, he was a very large man. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Very large, very redheaded, and uh, very angry most of the most of the time. <laughs> he started the obviously the English Reformation. He's famous to most people because of the way that he treated his wives. But his role in the English Reformation has always fascinated me. He basically just said, "All right, I'm the Pope now. I don't, I don't want to listen to the authorities in Rome or anything like that." And that, from what I understand, was the beginning of the monarch having a religious position in Great Britain, in addition to his or her political and uh, and kind of head of state role. Can you tell us a little bit about how the monarch's religious position has evolved subsequent to Henry VIII and what position Her Majesty has within the Church of England today? Yeah, so this and this this is fascinating because going back to what you were saying earlier about about the progression of enlightenment and history being a march forward, mm-hmm. you know Henry is is genuinely seen by many people and traditionally in Britain as that really important step that broke England away from corrupt European Catholicism, started Protestantism, enabled suddenly all this trade, this opening up of the world, the discovery of the New World, and so on. That that was sort of the beginning point. Utter nonsense. That doesn't work. I mean, the man the man was an absolute brute and wrecked the country and caused, as we were just saying, sort of over 200 years worth of, of really, really crippling civil war. But yeah, he took, as you rightly say, in, in order to solve his problem, that he his dynasty was young. His father had was the first Tudor monarch who had won at Bosworth Field, won in battle, the last British king to win the crown in battle. Uh, so the Tudor monarchy was young. So Henry needed children in order to in order to continue the monarchy. And he particularly wanted a son. And, and his wife, Catherine Merrigan, had not given him a son. Now, he had had to go to Rome to get explicit permission to marry Catherine in the first place because she was his dead brother's widow. Uh, and so he shouldn't have done it, but he got permission to do it. So then when he went to the Pope and said, can I please now divorce her? The Pope said, you have no idea how much trouble it was to be able to say you could marry her in the first place. No, you can't. So he thought, oh, this isn't going to work. I really want a son. Okay, well, let's just say that in this country, the Pope has no jurisdiction. We're all still Catholic. We all still follow the sacraments in the Catholic way, but the Pope has no jurisdiction. I'm in charge. So all legal appeals stop with me. They don't go to Rome. And beyond that, religiously, I'm in charge as well. So for anything spiritual, come and talk to me. And so he passed the Act of Supremacy in 1534. So he made himself effectively, as you say, the the Pope in England. 
The coronation ceremony for an English monarch is actually a religious ceremony. There is a part of that ceremony where the where the monarch is effectively ordained into the Church of England. Mm. So the monarch is a type of minister within the Church of England. There is a, there is an ordination moment, and so is deemed to have some of the priestly charism that goes along with the ordination of bishops and priests and so on. You know, within the Church of England, and that is still the case. So when we see, and it's 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 not going to be. That long ahead, one probably feels the coronation of, of Prince Charles as king. I'm sure all the commentators will be talking about it. There will be that moment when he, he is effectively ordained as the head of the Church of England. So it, it is still a religious role. Is that the anointing? Is that the, the moment where it becomes the kind of a religious ceremony? It's even stronger than the anointing. The anointing oh, okay. is there and, ha- and has always been there, was in medieval coronations. They're anointed with, with chrism. It's, it's a biblical uh, reference to show they are marked out as special and favoured of God, you know, the divine right of kings and so on. But the, the English ceremony goes even further and actually gives them a role within the church actively. Okay. Speaking of, I actually forgot to ask you this question. So jumping back a little bit to the era of the Magna Carta, because you brought up Henry VIII, portrayed in one way was really another. You talked about Richard the Lionheart in the book and, and how somebody else who probably is not, not probably, definitely is not how he is so often portrayed. I've been to London seven or eight times and he's got a giant statue right outside <laughs> the Houses of Parliament. Uh, any any thoughts on that? And, and kind of generally about, again, this revisionist attitude that is, I think is, my opinion, well needed in regards to Richard. I mean, Richard baffles me completely because this this is not new news that he was he was a nasty person. Yeah. Stubbs, who was one of the, the leading sort of Victorian historians, uh, again at Oxford, he said that Richard was, you know, a bad king, a bad husband, a bad father, a bad man. He was no Englishman. That's a very kind of dated view of what it means to be English. But no, the fact is that Richard the Lionheart hated England. He visited twice, once for his coronation, once to get a whole load of money before he went off crusading. He tried to sell everything that wasn't nailed down. He tried to sell London, but he couldn't find a buyer. Uh, he called it a nasty, dreary, rainy place. And he spent all of his time crusading or living in France. He hated this place. So it's just one of those weird, weird developments in history that he is adored as one of our favourite medieval kings. Every school child learns of him, colours in pictures of him from the mm-hmm. age of about five onwards. There's this massive, as you rightly say, incredibly imposing equestrian statue of him outside Parliament. It's utterly bizarre. I mean, I know, I know you have statue conflagrations around statues in the US as well. A little bit, yes. Around heritage. <laughs> you know, we, we, we have the same here. We've had people thrown into rivers, you know, statues of people thrown into rivers. But yeah, why Richard is outside Parliament, I have no idea. And Oliver Cromwell, who we may or may not talk about, who I think was one of the nastiest people ever to have lived in the British Isles. Uh, there's a statue of him outside Parliament with his Bible and his sword. You know, he killed more people per capita than World War I. Genocided the Irish for no apparent reason. Mm. And yet we have him outside our Parliament. And it just makes me think, what message are we sending the world about what it is that Britain values? If we have a, a medieval king who loathed the country, another one, uh, you know, who points himself dictator and tried to rip most of it apart. Strange. Statues are a strange <laughs> subject. But anyway, I'm probably taking us off. Uh, they are. <laughs> no, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'll share my opinion. I, I won't ask you to comment unless you have have any views on this, but I think that statues, a lot of them, where there's a lot of controversy, put them in museums. If if it's going to be someone who has done genuinely horrible, horrible things, but who also has a beloved place in the public heart, public mind, maybe a public square is not the right place. Maybe just put them in museums, but... No, I'm with I'm with you entirely. I think it's I think the the question of what they represent historically, they were characters. We still mm-hmm. need to learn about them. I agree totally. Put them in a museum because they're they're not necessarily who we're saying we should all be contemplating in our public spaces. I mean, that's a different activity, isn't it? So I yeah. agree with you. 
You mentioned Cromwell and the role that Parliament plays in British culture, British government, obviously, that that really changed during the Civil War when Parliament really asserted its supremacy to the point of killing the king. The document is the letter to Lord Monteagle talking about the gunpowder plot. I'm not going to ask you a what if question or anything like that about, you know, what if the gunpowder plot had succeeded? I, I don't like what if questions, as Joe well knows on this uh, and, and regular listeners do. But, I've had shoes hurled at me. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but can you give us a sense of what the change in British culture and British society was at, in that in that awful, bloody, but I would say necessary transition from absolutism to parliamentary supremacy and how parliament continues even today to both reflect and also to shape British, even outside of politics, just British cultural life. It is the key period. You're absolutely right. Throughout throughout the, the, the Middle Ages, Parliament is building. We, we have a, a two-house Parliament. We have the House of Lords, which is the, the secondary, more senior, now the revising chamber. And we have the House of Commons, which is the, the direct representatives elected from every shire and county who, who, who come from sit. So throughout the medieval period, that evolves. And as in every other country, there are, of course, endless tensions between that and the monarch. So when, so when, when, when the final confrontation comes, yes, it, it is very bloody. It ends in civil war, ends in the uh, king's head being chopped off. It ends in, in, in parliament winning the civil war and establishing a, a, a commonwealth. But, you know, all power corrupts. It soon goes bad. Cromwell turns himself into dictator, fails, doesn't work. And parliament end up calling back the exiled king, Charles II, from from Bruges. And as we were saying earlier, establishes this idea that parliament appoints the monarch. So we then have this sort of cohabitation in Britain, this this understanding between parliament and the monarchy as to how it gets run. So we live in a constitutional monarchy, we call it. But what that that means now is that theoretically, legally, on paper, the monarch still has all the power. The monarch has the powers over, you know, to do anything that needs doing. The government acts in the monarch's name. But by convention, the monarch delegates all of that to Parliament to do. So you'll still see every act of Parliament, for example, it gets signed by both houses of Parliament, but then it has to go to the monarch for royal assent. By tradition, the monarch will not refuse, but that's still a part of the process. The full name of Parliament is, is the Queen in Parliament. He has to come, it'll be the King in Parliament. So it's that, it's that coming together of both of them. But I think one of the things that we, we did that was really important, and I mentioned this towards the end of the book, is that separation of the military from Parliament. If you go to France now and, and, and you see some visiting dignitary going and visiting President Macron, you'll see soldiers sort of lining the steps of the Elysee Palace as they go in. It's a very militarised environment. You'll never see soldiers around the Prime Minister or around Parliament. The, the, the military tradition is kept with the monarchy uh, and Parliament is kept entirely away from, frankly, thanks to Cromwell, away from the military and has no real say over the military. Anyone who serves in the forces in the UK, uh, and I did, you swear your allegiance to the crown, not to parliament and not to any politician. And I think that was something that Britain discovered the hard way, because we are small and we are very fractious and we are very argumentative people. And I think as the book also mentions, historically a very violent people, actually keeping, keeping military and weaponry away from parliament is probably one of the biggest and most meaningful changes that came in in this period you're talking about when the, 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 land, the lie of the land settles between parliament and the monarchy. But demilitarizing parliament was a very, was a very important step uh, and I think very significant in the stability that then followed. Hmm. Did parliament, I actually, I, I've studied the English Civil War, but there's, there are some gaps. Did parliament give Cromwell any kind of authority or did he just take it? Uh, he just took it. Okay. He just took it. So there was, there was, there was a coup, it was called Pride's Purge, 
a division of the New Model Army, which Cromwell ran, effectively stood outside Parliament, only let in the MPs that they wanted to let in, told everybody else, if you're not up for this, then you better leave. So got left with, with those who were really the hardcore supporters. They voted to put Charles on trial. They then executed Charles. They then effectively formed an army council that Cromwell led mm. and ruled using that council. And then Cromwell, again, you know, he's outside Parliament. You think, well, he must be a great parliamentarian. And some, some traditions in Britain do look to him as part of the journey towards liberal democracy. But he wasn't. He closed down Parliament. He said, I can't be doing with this. He shut it down. He ruled as a dictator. So that's another lie we tell ourselves. He was in no mm. way a Democrat. Parliamentary shenanigans led to the Civil War. And then Cromwell does the same thing. That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> you brought up demilitarizing Parliament. One of my favorite periods to study is World War II and the figure of Churchill who was very involved in the military affairs, was that delegated to him by King George VI? Or did he just, or, or was that before the, de the demilitarization of parliament was kind of completed? Yeah, I, I, so sort of demilitarization in the sense that you, you always see police guarding the, 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 the prime minister of parliament. You won't see a prime minister of Britain wearing military uniform. They, they keep those very separate. On a day-to-day -day level, of course, the government is directing strategy, running the war room, giving the commands to the Joint Chiefs of Staff to implement whatever the military plans are. The monarch is not, is not involved in that. Mm -hmm. but, but ultimately, the power to go to war is a prerogative right and does come from the monarch. But Parliament and the, well, the, the government exercise it on behalf of the monarch. Okay. Joe, anything to jump in there before we move to kind of the more modern period? There's so much in this book. I, I want to talk about all 50 documents. I'm enjoying hearing all of this. This is uh, just just great. I uh, just a, um, a quick comment. Reading through the book, it was like reading a story. It was not like reading pure history. To your point earlier, where it's it's just a bit dry. And in the past, as you read through these on their own, what you're able to do in this book is really weave these together into a tapestry that not only made the book easy to read, but you forget you're reading it. After I would close it each time, the only thing that I would I would have would be what I absorbed. And it was no, it was just very, it's a very, very well-organized, well-written book in the sense that uh, the reader takes away all of the content. So yeah, I'm really, everything I'm hearing now is like amplified, like all that content being amplified. So uh, sorry if I sound, sound a bit silent. <laughs> I'm just no. really enjoying this. No, well, thank you. Like, no, I appreciate that. And my, before writing this book, the last couple of books I'd written were actually spy thriller books. So oh, I, really? do, I do like trying to write something as a bit of a story. I, I do, you know, I'm very keen on story and keeping things lively. So I'm really pleased to hear that, it, that, that you found that works. And to, just to add on to that, we, we at 15 Minute History were big fans of Andrew Roberts and his, uh, and specifically his writing style. And, and as I was reading this, I was recalling how much I enjoyed his biographies of Churchill, Napoleon and George III. And it's the same kind of, you're reading it and you forget that you're reading. It's you're, you're in the story. So I hope you'll take this as a compliment. This, is, this compares very favorably to what Andrew Roberts has written. Well, I'm flattered. That's very kind. <laughs> it's good stuff. This concludes part one of our interview with Dr. Dominic Selwood about his book, Anatomy of a Nation, A History of British Identity in 50 Documents. Please stay tuned here on 15 Minute History for part two, coming to you next week. Thank you for joining us in our special summertime discussion of Anatomy of a Nation. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. And if you would like to help us make this podcast even better, go to 15minutehistorypodcast.org and hit the support button. Thank you, and see you soon.